Sounds okay? All right. <laughs> so anyway, there's three inches of water uh, in our basement, I found out yesterday. And I remembered, I thought, I heard a crash at one point on Friday. And I realized what it was when I went down there is we had a bunch of plastic totes and the water had gotten high enough, they were stacked on top of each other, that it rose and then the totes fell over. <laughs> so, a lot of water in the basement. Fortunately, we didn't have anything down there that was of too much value, but, you know, one of those unexpected, uh, one of those times when life throws you a wrench. So, yesterday was more complicated than I expected. And hopefully, that doesn't show too much uh, in the message this morning. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so, quick recap of where we are in Galatians. Why is Paul writing this letter? He's writing it because some false teachers had influenced the Galatians to think a certain way. Uh, they had influenced the Galatians to think that in order to be part of God's family, you have to obey the law of Moses. The whole law of Moses. And the law of Moses was over 600 commandments. Uh, that was given to Israel after the exodus out of Egypt, you know, including rules like dietary laws, rules like all males need to be circumcised, you know, certain kinds of fabric can't be mixed, uh, all kinds of things like that. And uh, as non-Jewish people started to come to faith in Christ, the question arose, well, do these people have to follow the Mosaic law? Should that be expected of them in order to be considered part of the family of God? The apostles said, no, they don't have to. But this group of teachers that had infiltrated the Galatian church said, yes, yes, they do. And unfortunately, the Galatian church had been swayed to believe those false teachers. And so Paul was writing to correct that. And as we have seen so far, he was writing with a lot of frustration. I think that Galatians is Paul's angriest letter. This really made him upset. Uh, and we're going to hear that frustration even more than we have the past few weeks in this next section. So we're going to read that in just a moment. But before we do, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this chance to gather together, to behold you as a congregation, to worship you. And Lord, we thank you for this chance to look at your scriptures together and we pray that you would help us to focus our attention on these words, Lord. Fill us with curiosity about them. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit use them to speak to our hearts and our minds and to draw them more in alignment with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? 
You can tell how angry Paul is because he says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. And then he asks five questions. <laughs> just one thing. Actually, no, five things, right? He's very upset. And I don't know about you, but I find it striking how blunt Paul is here. You foolish Galatians, he says. Are you so foolish? I was trying to imagine how it might go over if I got up here and talked like that. Uh, I, I suspect that if I was trying to persuade people and I spoke to them this way, it probably wouldn't work very well. It probably would uh, turn off anyone who was listening to me. And so that raises the question, well, was Paul wrong to talk like this? And you probably aren't surprised to hear me say, no, I don't think he was. So does that mean that it would be okay for me to talk like this? No, I don't think so either. <laughs> and here's why. We have to keep in mind that different cultures have different rules of engagement and communication. And we have to be sensitive to that. I was reading a little bit about the context that Paul was speaking in. And in those days, if you were in a debate and you wanted to be taken seriously, you got blunt like this. Uh, if you didn't, it was unlikely that people would even really listen to what you had to say because they wouldn't really think that you meant what you were talking about. Now, in our culture right now, if you come at someone and you go, how could you be so foolish? What usually happens? I'm not going to listen to you anymore, right? Because I, it, I don't think that you're speaking seriously. I think you're speaking in a way that's trying to demean or attack me, right? So we just got to be careful that when we read the way that Paul handled something, it doesn't necessarily mean that's going to work as well in our particular cultural context. Right? We have to be sensitive to that. Now, that doesn't mean there's never a place for talking the way Paul's talking right now, but we gotta, we gotta keep in mind, Paul was speaking to his cultural context, we have to learn how to talk in our own cultural context, and we just gotta be sensitive about that, okay? But anyway, what Paul does in this section is he gives three reasons why following the Mosaic Law is not necessary for belonging in the family of God. And the first one comes from the first verse. Paul says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now that's a line that I've read many times over the years and it's always puzzled me a little bit. Is Paul saying that these Galatians were actually present when Jesus was crucified, watching him get crucified? Because if you take it literally, that sounds like what he's saying, right? But that can't be right because Jesus was crucified 30 years earlier, hundreds of miles away uh, from where the Galatians were. So that, that must not be it. Um, what he's saying is that when he first came and preached to the Galatians... He communicated to them that Jesus Christ was crucified, that the Son of God hung on a cross for them. And he emphasized that, and he set that before their imaginations in a way that was powerful to them, in a way that was memorable, in a way that you know, drew them to faith in Jesus. That is, that's what he's saying. And so what I hear Paul saying when he says, you know, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. 
He's saying something like, what is wrong with you? I explained to you that the Son of God died a humiliating and horrible death. And you should realize that that changes things. Like, you should realize that that accomplished something. You should know that his death was not in vain. Right? You should know that his death atoned for sin and opened wide the gates to the family of God. But you're acting like it was nothing. You're, like, you're acting like it didn't do anything at all. Like it was powerless. Like everything should just continue the way it always was with us following the Mosaic Law. Saying, how could you know about the cross, the horror of the cross, and still think this way? How could you not realize how earth-shattering it is that the incarnation of the Son of God suffered this horrible death, the eternal creator of the universe, how, how, could you not, how could you know that and not, be, not realize that things have changed because of that? And I think there's a principle for us to, to live by here. The truth that should guide our lives is the truth that the Son of God was crucified for the sins of the world. There shouldn't be a day that goes by when we are not mindful of that, when we don't remember that. You know, Paul wrote to the Corinthians that when he was with them, he resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Why? Because when we understand the significance of Christ crucified, that has power to transform our, our, the way we live and the way that we think. And it's when we lose sight of that core truth that the Son of God died for our sins, that's when we start to drift into bad theology and bad practice. And what had happened in Galatia, of course, is they'd lost sight of Christ crucified. They had drift away from, drifted away from putting that truth at the center of their lives. So, first reason uh, Paul gives for why following the Mosaic Law is not necessary for belonging in the family of God is because the Son of God was crucified for our sins. Second reason he gives is because they've received the Holy Spirit. Because they've received the Holy Spirit. He says, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? And in case you can't tell, that is a rhetorical question where the answer is implied. You received the Spirit by believing what you heard. You know, the Galatians didn't receive the Spirit because they had been following the law. It's not like the Spirit suddenly showed up because Gentile men started being circumcised. And the same is true today, right? The Spirit shows up independent of people following the Mosaic Law. It's not like the Spirit suddenly comes or leaves because of whether or not somebody eats shrimp. He operates independently of that. Look at verse 3. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? What Paul is saying here is if you return to the law, you are trying to attain belonging in the family of God in your own strength. And that doesn't work. Now, I do want to clarify something, though. Some people might look at this verse and think, 
that if we are following the Spirit, that it's not going to be, it's going to feel effortless if we're following the Spirit. Some people could read that and think that. But that's not what Paul's saying. Sometimes following the Spirit does feel like work. It's important for us to recognize that. Sometimes it, it, it's going to require discipline to follow the Holy Spirit. It can require sacrifice. Right? It can even lead to persecution in some cases. And apparently in the Galatian church, for a while it had. You know, Paul described uh, living life in the Spirit like running a race. Running a race can be hard. We've got to persevere. So we shouldn't think that God is against us putting in effort into following him. That is not what Paul is saying. But God doesn't want us to be trying to earn our salvation. There is a difference between effort and earning. There's a quote from Dallas Willard that I appreciate. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. The attitude that says, I am going to earn my place in God's family. You know, I'm going to earn my salvation. That is not the attitude that God wants us to have. That's the kind of attitude that, you know, Paul is talking about when he talks about, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? But God has no problem with the kind of attitude that says, God, I want to follow you, even if it's hard sometimes. Even if that means I have to make sacrifices. Even if it takes work, I want to do that. That's a good thing. That's a, that's a necessary thing, even. You know, Jesus said that if we're going to follow him, we have to be willing to pick up our cross. So, this verse is not in conflict with that. Effort is good. Earning is not. And then the third reason that Paul gives for why following the Mosaic Law isn't necessary is because God has done miracles among Gentile believers. God has done miracles among Gentile believers. Paul says, Does God give his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? And of course, the implied answer is because you believe what you heard. Now, we don't know for sure what all these miracles were that God was doing in the Galatian church. Um, we can be pretty confident that one of them was people were speaking in tongues, which means that they were speaking in languages that they had never learned. Uh, but there's lots of other possible miracles that were taking place. Um, it's likely that some people were miraculously healed of illnesses, ailments. Uh, it, it's possible that some Galatian Gentile church members were equipped with the ability to pray for other people and then see them be healed. Uh, it's also possible that uh, Gentile believers were experiencing words of knowledge. That's when you suddenly know something that you have no reason to know. Um, I, I, uh, I heard a story not too long ago from a friend of mine who experienced this. Uh, he said that he was praying for somebody, and he had this word keep going into his mind that he had no idea what it meant, and he had no idea why he would be thinking of it. It was something like Daisy Doll. 
And he felt like God was saying, I want you to say this word to this woman. And uh, he was like, oh, I don't, I don't want to do that. That's awkward. You know, if I, if I say that and it doesn't mean anything to her, then it's just going to be weird. But he just felt this push that I've, I've got to do this. And so he says, you know, does, does Daisy Doll mean anything to you? And, oh, that just surfaces this whole story from her childhood, something that was very formative for her and that she needed to process through. And then they were able to minister to her on a whole other level because of this word of knowledge. So that's a good example, modern-day example, of the kinds of things that were probably happening in the Galatian church. Um, there, were, there were miracles happening then, and I believe there are still miracles that happen now, those kinds of things. And whether those things happen or not has absolutely nothing to do with whether people are following the Mosaic law. These things happen independently of that. And Paul is saying, the fact that these things are happening is a sign to you that God accepts these Gentiles into the family of God independent of following the law. All right, so let's keep reading in verse 6. Now, so far, Paul has been making his case primarily by appealing to the experiences the, Gentile, the um, Galatian church has had, right? The experience of hearing about Christ crucified, um, the experience of miracles, the experience of receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, like any good theologian, uh, Paul is going to try to make his case not just from experience, but from Scripture, and the way he's going to do that is by focusing on the story of Abraham. Now, what I'm going to read, there's quite a bit here, and it's going to be a lot to take in, but just do your best to receive it, and then I'll go back and we'll, we'll look at it more closely. So, starting in verse 6. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand, then, that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, the scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. 
the law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. So Paul turns to the example of Abraham. Abraham's story is told in the very first book of the Bible, book of Genesis. And what Paul points out is that Abraham was regarded as righteous by God long before the law was given. Abraham lived 430 years before the Mosaic law was given to Moses. 430 years before the law, God made a covenant with Abraham, meaning he made, he made a promise. In Genesis 15, it says that God told Abraham, who at the time was over 75 years old, he had no children, he, he told Abraham, come outside, look up at the stars, which I imagine were not uh, clouded at all by light pollution or air pollution or anything like that. He said, look up at the stars and recognize, so shall your offspring be. In other words, you are going to have biological children, descendants, and they are going to outnumber the stars that you're looking at in the sky, which is quite a promise to make to a 75-year-old man with no kids and a barren wife. But that was the promise that God made. And that was 430 years before the law. And God also promised Abraham that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That through him and through his descendants, all nations on earth would be blessed. Abraham did not need the Mosaic law to receive these promises. He didn't need the Mosaic Law to be regarded as righteous or in right standing with God. He just needed to receive these promises and believe them and live in light of those promises. That was it. And what Paul is saying is, we are the descendants of Abraham. And if we are the descendants of Abraham, then we should recognize that it is possible to be justified apart from the law, to be regarded by God as righteous because our spiritual ancestor Abraham, that was the case for him. Now, that doesn't mean that the law doesn't serve a purpose. And actually, next time we look at Galatians, we're going to get into that. Paul addresses that question of, well, what was the whole purpose of the Mosaic Law? So that, that's coming. But right now, Paul's main point is clearly we have evidence in the scriptures themselves that a person can be regarded as being in the family of God, being in right standing with God, apart from the law. Clearly. Because the one we recognize as our spiritual father, Abraham, that was the case for him. Now let's look at verse 16, because this is a, a confusing one. <laughs> it says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time on this, because this is a passage where, if we don't understand what Paul is actually saying, it can sound like he's just making a bad argument. 
Um, for a while, whenever I read this passage, I thought that what Paul was saying was something like, if you look at this word seed, it can mean singular. Therefore, when this promise was made to Abraham, it was really God promising that through Abraham, there would, his, he would have the descendant of Jesus. And what doesn't really work about that is, if you remember when God made the promise to Abraham, he told him to look up at the stars and said, so shall your offspring be, right? Like, the promise to Abraham wasn't that there would only be one descendant. The promise that there was that there would be many descendants. So that's confusing, and then it's also confusing because it sounds like Paul is just kind of playing fast and loose with language, right? Like, oh, seed, it actually means singular. It doesn't actually mean plural. When at the same time, you know, if we, if we understand that word seed, we recognize, well, actually, that, that could mean both, right? And the, and the same is true of the word that Paul was using in the original language. So it's like, whoa, Paul, what are you doing here? It sounds like, it sounds like you're not being entirely honest. Well, let me assure you that when we understand what Paul actually means here, he's actually not uh, being deceptive or playing fast and loose with, uh, with language. What we have to recognize is that that word that's getting translated as seed is better understood as family. Family. So Paul is not saying that Abraham was promised only one descendant, who is the Messiah. He's saying that Abraham was promised one family through the Messiah. Now, the word family captures the essence of that word seed, which is that it is a singular word, but it has a collective sense to it. You know, it's like the word team, right? It is singular, uh, but it has a collective sense. N.T. Wright is one of the world's most famous biblical scholars, and he translates this verse this way. He says, the promises were made to Abraham and his seed, that is, his family. It doesn't say his seeds, as though referring to several families, but indicates a single family by saying, and to your seed, meaning the Messiah. So the point that Paul is making is that Abraham's descendants should be one family. One family, united by faith in Jesus. There shouldn't be the Jewish family over here and the Gentile family over there. All followers of Jesus should be one family. Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus shouldn't be eating at different tables like they've been doing in the Galatian church. Because Abraham was not promised two different families. Okay, he, was, he, he was promised offspring, and that word is a singular collective. One family, one team, that is as numerous as the stars in the sky. Okay, hopefully that makes sense. I know that's all a little confusing. But when I finally understood this, I was like, oh, thank goodness. Because I really thought Paul was using a tortured argument here. Um, but it actually makes sense when we, when we just think of seed as family. It comes together. So what does this mean for us now? We're not dividing over circumcision these days. At least I don't know anyone who is. 
What it means is that we really should be making an effort to preserve unity in the church. We should make, be making an effort to preserve unity with all those who profess faith in Jesus and who have received the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I am not saying that there aren't things that are worth dividing over. You know, Paul thinks that there are things that are worth dividing over, and, and uh, we, he's not talking about that necessarily in this passage, but there are other places where he talks about that. But too often, the church has been fractured for completely unnecessary reasons. Throughout church history, it's happened over and over again. Whole denominations have been formed over disagreements on periphery issues. You know, too often the church has been divided along racial and ethnic lines, by political parties. And we need to remember that working for unity in the body of Christ is part of the way that we live out the gospel. It's, it's key to the gospel. And just to be clear, unity in Christ does not mean that we agree on everything. You know, if we agreed on anything, everything, then we wouldn't need unity through Christ. We would just have unity through agreeing on everything. Unity in Christ comes from that shared trust that the Son of God died for our sins. And it comes from that shared experience of the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And we should value preserving that one family, that one seed, that one offspring as much as we can. The righteous shall live by faith. I want to encourage us to ask ourselves this morning, do I live by faith? Do I live by faith that the Son of God was crucified for me? Do I live by faith that he bore the curse of the law so that I don't have to? Do I live by faith that the promises God made to Abraham are now fulfilled through Jesus? Do I live by that faith? Do I live with the faith that God is blessing the whole world through what Jesus has done? Or am I fixated on rules and regulations and conflicts and debates? The righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, passages like this one can be challenging. They can be confusing. And Lord, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate them for us. Lord, we thank you uh, for the freedom that this letter encourages us to live in. Uh, Lord, we thank you that what you did through the cross was so powerful as to bring together one family uh, throughout the world of people united by faith in you and by the experience of the Holy Spirit. Lord, may you bring greater and greater unity to our church and to the church throughout the world as we seek to know you, Lord, and as we experience your goodness and your spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.